We don't see many representations of anthropologists in pop culture these days, but if I were to ask you who the most well-known fictional anthropologist is, many of you would probably say forensic anthropologist Dr. Temperance Brennan from the TV show Bones. Bones aired on the Fox network for 12 seasons and accumulated many fans in the same time frame. The show Bones is many things, entertaining, funny, filled with drama, but one thing it is not is accurate. Join us for this episode of The Anthrophiles as we review and analyze three episodes of Bones to determine how accurate, or more likely inaccurate, the show really is. I'm Sarah. I'm Emily. And I'm Katrina. And this is The Anthrophiles. All right, so I chose this topic today, and I, th- I know you guys also chose your topics to be a bit more lighthearted because the past three that we did were a little bit heavy, a little bit serious, so we're going to try to have a little bit more fun in the next three episodes of this season. Hi, guys. Hi. How you Hi. doing? Um, so, little background before we start this episode. I was trying to figure out what topic I wanted to do for this, and I remembered that in our forensic anthropology class, we had to watch an episode of Bones and answer some questions about what parts were accurate and what parts weren't. So I was like, what if I took that and put that into podcast format somehow? And then Professor Reedy showed me this blog called Powered by Osteons by Christina Kilgrove, where she has reviewed every single episode of Bones, and she's rated it based on the drama and the intrigue of the episode, but also on the accuracy of the forensic anthropology in the episode. So I saw that, and I was like, wow, that's like a great jumping-off point, and I decided to do my own version of it on this episode with my unprofessional knowledge of forensic anthropology. So before we get into the episodes and everything, I want to start with two basic bits of information. One, what is a forensic anthropologist? And two, what is the TV show Bones, in case anybody doesn't know? So let's start with forensic anthropologists. Forensic anthropology is a subfield of biological anthropology where human remains of medical and legal significance are analyzed. So a forensic anthropologist would be the person who studies and analyzes those skeletal remains. A forensic anthropologist can do a number of different things with their degree and title. But to be considered a forensic anthropologist, you need to get a PhD and either become board certified or be recognized as an expert witness in court. So what are some areas of forensic anthropology that a forensic anthropologist could specialize in? Do you guys remember this from class? Well, if we're thinking in terms of bones, I would think like crime scene, Mm -hmm. like looking at remains at a crime scene. I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then you're you're. You're ready for this episode, then. I'm Katrina. ready to learn. <laughs> so probably the most like obvious answer that pops into people's heads is a forensic anthropologist could assist in helping to solve a crime somehow by analyzing human skeletal remains. But they can also do a number of other things. It's not just confined to that. Um, they can provide courtroom testimony based on their expertise. But again, this is only if they've reached the level of being considered an expert witness. Uh, They could also study and learn more about people of the past by analyzing their skeletal remains, and this overlaps with the subfield of bioarchaeology. They could also work as a professor, teacher, or researcher of forensic anthropology at a university or institution. They also assist in analyzing remains involved in human rights violations, such as genocide or mass graves, and they can also help to recover, identify, and return POWs and MIA servicemen and women from areas of war. Does that sound familiar from class? It does. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Actually, I did my 
little mini podcast episode for the project on the human rights violations. Oh, okay. Yeah. We were just talking about that. I remember remembered. now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now Bones, the TV show. Have you guys seen Bones? I've seen so much of Bones. I've seen a lot of Bones. You've, okay. I'd never watched it before doing this, but I, you'd seen it and you had too. But now I'm hooked on it. <laughs> I can't <laughs> stop watching it. Um, it's basically a crime procedural comedy drama that follows Dr. Temperance Brennan, a.k.a. Bones, as they call her sometimes in the show, as she and her team of forensic anthropologists assist FBI agent Celie Booth solve gruesome murders. There's a website that I mentioned before called Power by Osteons, where a forensic anthropologist has reviewed every episode, so this is like my homage to that. Homage? 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 I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's that to that. We're not English majors. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to know how accurately this show displays the field of forensic anthropology. So I've picked three key episodes from the Bones series, and this is how I picked them. I picked one that was rated as the best Bones episode of all time, drama and plot-wise, and I found that episode from a website called Episode Ninja. So getting straight from the source. Quality source. <laughs> yeah. And then I found the other two... Um, from Forbes magazine website and it is the most accurate Bones episode in terms of forensic anthropology and the least accurate Bones episode in terms of anthropology. So let's get started. Episode number one that we're going to be focusing on is the most entertaining best Bones episode of all time according to episode ninja. It is season nine episode 24 the recluse in the recliner. So what I'm going to do for all these episodes is I'm, I'm going to give you guys a short summary, and then we're going to go into detail about what they get right and what they get wrong. So summary first. Booth, the main male character, gets a phone call from a burner phone telling him that they have information about a potential case for the FBI. He has the call traced and brushes it off as a security breach. Then, he is called to a crime scene at the exact location where his phone call was traced. The forensic anthropologists on the show examine the crime scene, which consists of a charred corpse that has been found inside an incinerated trailer. The victim is identified as Wesley Foster, a conspiracy blogger who had a memory chip full of information about corruption in the government, military, FBI, and other major businesses. This implies that there are some bigger implications behind a certain serial killer case that the team has been working on, known as the ghost killer case. Booth goes to interview a representative from one of the business companies, but he can't get any information out of them. The forensics team then determines that Foster, the victim, had been tortured by Delta Force operatives, indicating that he was intentionally targeted for information and then murdered to be silenced. The IT person then finds a photo of a congressman kissing another man on Foster's memory chip, which, side note, the memory chip was located inside a nipple ring, so that was <laughs> that was fun. It really could have been anywhere. <laughs> it could, but they decided to put it there. So then Booth realizes that both he and that congressman are being blackmailed by someone who knows what is on that memory chip. And this means that Booth and his family, Booth, by the way, at this point is married to Dr. Temperance Brennan and they have a child together, So him and his family are in danger. He convinces Brennan to run away and hide for safety. And he sets booby traps in his house to like catch these people that are hunting him down for information. He booby traps the house and captures the people blackmailing him. Um, And he is able to kill all three of them, but not without succumbing to critical injuries. 
Booth collapses from his injuries and is quickly brought to the hospital. He survives surgery but wakes to find himself handcuffed to the hospital bed and being accused of killing three FBI agents, even though he thought that they were the bad guys. Dun-dun-dun. And that's the end of the episode. It's a season finale. Very dramatic. I was a little confused because I missed some important information from earlier. But that's the gist of it. Have you guys seen that episode before? I watched it with you, so yes. No, but the first thing I thought of was Home Alone vibes. It, it was really? Of, uh, we Just with more C4. It, we were watching it with our roommates, and one of them said that. <laughs> like, it's Home Alone, but with dynamite. He really was just strapping explosives. To everything. Every, like, at, on every object in, in his, his house. house. Yes. Yeah. Like, like, valuable pieces of, like, memorabilia and, like, wedding photos and stuff. And he was, like, got to strap the C4 to it. It was very entertaining. Like, there will be an upcoming trip to Ikea. <laughs> That's very dramatic. Yes, it was. The house was not in good shape after the fight. All right, anyway, so let's get into analyzing the episode. I've decided to call all, like, the little errors that they have forensic red flags. So there are a lot of forensic red flags in this episode. Let's start with how they determine the sex of the victim. So when you determine the sex of unidentified remains, forensic anthropologists will normally examine the shape and size of the pelvis, skull, and long bones, and they'll take measurements from the long bones, and they'll note the shape variation on a scale. Keep in mind also that sex can be difficult to determine if bones present both male and female characteristics. It would be unethical for a forensic anthropologist to declare a sex if the remains did not make it clear. Also, a person's sex does not always correlate with a person's gender identity. Just because remains are biologically identified as male or female, it does not mean the person identifies as a man or a woman. So. We took the class together. I'm really testing your knowledge here, you guys. Do you remember at all how, like, different ways that a forensic anthropologist may determine sex? I think so. Go for it. I want to say the leg bones, like the femur, they can tell, usually. Mm -hmm. You did mention the pelvis. Yes. I feel like that's a big one. Yes. The pelvis is a big one, yeah. So both of you are correct. So the human pelvis provides the most reliable way of determining the sex of the remains. So when you're looking at a male pelvis versus a female pelvis, a female would have a wider subpubic angle, and that's the angle of your pubic bone, and a wider, greater sciatic notch, which is an angle at the back of the pelvis. So the reason that the subpubic angle is wider on the female is because there's more room, which will allow for a fetus to get through during birth, which I feel like makes sense like when you think about it and then a male um subpubic angle is going to be more narrow and it's going to be smaller you can also use the skull to determine sex so there are different spots on the skull that a forensic anthropologist will look at to determine whether it's a male or a female so one part of the skull you can look at is the nuchal crest so take your finger <laughs> listeners at home do this too the the nuchal crest if you take your finger and you go to the back of your skull and you kind of find where your neck muscles meet your skull, it's the little point on the back of your head. That's your nuchal crest. A male's nuchal crest um, is going to feel rougher, it's going to look more robust, and it's going to uh, look bigger as well, while a female's is going to be smoother. You can also look at the mastoid process, and if you take your finger again, this is the bulky bit of bone that you feel right behind your ear. So that's that part of the skull. This part of the skull is larger and more pronounced on a male skull than it is on a female. 
Another part of the skull you can look at to determine sex is the glabella, and that's your brow ridge. A male's glabella is more pronounced and a female's is less pronounced. And then also you can look at the mental eminence, which is your chin, and a male's is usually more square, while a female's tends to be more pointed and smaller. So you have to look at all of those key components to determine sex. While a professional anthropologist could probably do this fairly quickly, they would still definitely need to take time to make sure they get a good look at the bones so they can be as accurate as possible. They would also compare their results with others and determine the statistical probability of the person being male or female, or undetermined if that's the case, and give the probability to law enforcement to help narrow down who the person could be. So, now that you know the correct process of identi identifying male and female, what parts of this process do you think the anthropologists bypass in bones to determine the sex? I'm going to think all of them. Yeah, that's a pro probably a good guess. Maybe everything but the skull. I feel like that's pretty obvious. Yeah. So they don't do any of those steps to determine <laughs> oh, the no. sex of the body. This is pretty bad. So in the bones episode, they don't even despite the fact that the show is called bones they don't look at the bones to determine the sex of the person they fully determined the sex based on the fact that booth received a phone call from a person who sounded like a male and that phone call was traced to the same location that the body was found does that make sense like, yes, but no. But no. <laughs> yes, yeah. according to the episode and the plot, but no, according to science. Yes, exactly. So that's how they determine the sex. So in case you didn't know, that was very incorrect and unethical as well. All of that aside, it was probably very hard for them to fully examine their skeletal remains because the person, the victim that they were, like, analyzing, their head literally exploded. So like there were pieces of the skull like splayed out everywhere so I don't know how like there are some parts of the skull you're not going to be able to look at very well because it's all they're over all the over place. the place fair yeah. enough fair enough he exploded so there's also some facial reconstruction going on in this episode so I feel like sometimes you watch these crime shows or medical shows or anything with like science kind of involved and they have this technology and you're like there's no way that's actually real you know what I mean? Do you have any, mm -hmm, yes. like, I, like things that pop in your head when you think of that? I think of, like, every crime show that they're, like, getting a picture of a car's license plate, and they're just, like, enhance, yes. and then enhance, it works. Enhance. Or, like, the sketch artist, and then they, like, run it through a database, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden the person, like, pops up, and you're like, no way. I think of Spy Kids when they put that thing in the microwave. <gasps> and it comes out. It's and like it's, a whole meal. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so... They use facial reconstruction in this episode, which is a real thing that forensic anthropologists and criminal investigators will use to try to determine who a victim might be. But they don't do it correctly in Bones, which I know is shocking. The fact that they have facial reconstruction is about the only accurate thing in this episode. So let's start with how they do facial reconstruction on Bones. So by the time the team is analyzing the skeletal remains on this episode, they already have a possible identification of the victim. They believe the victim is a man named Wesley Foster, but they want the forensics team to look at the remains to make sure. So Angela, who is the forensic artist on the show, begins a digital facial reconstruction of the skull to see if it matches the picture that Foster has from the DMV. Do you see any red flags going on yet? Well... We, we did talk about how his skull exploded. Yes. 
So if they haven't put it back together yet. So Angela's going to fix it. Don't you worry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, they already have the image of him from the DMV. So if Angela is doing a facial reconstruction that, like, she's doing by hand, it's not computerized, like, she's already going to have an image of him in her head, which is going to, in some way, like, subconsciously affect the way that she draws it. So there's, like, a disconnect there that probably wouldn't be happening in real life. As you said, Emily, Foster literally exploded, so the skull is cracked in a million different ways. Um, But what Angela does is she takes some composite images of the exploded skull, puts it in the computer, presses two buttons, and the image of the skull magically repairs itself to what it looked like before the explosion. And then Dr. Brennan comes in and she looks at this image and she says, she looks at it for about 0.5 seconds and she goes, the facial structure of the DMV picture matches the facial structure of the facial reconstruction image. So it must be him. Now I will say, when Dr. Brennan is looking at like the image of the facial reconstruction, she does point out that the dimensions of the orbital socket, which is your eye socket, the zygomatic process, which is your cheekbone, and the mandible, your lower jaw, and the maxilla, your upper jaw, matches with the DMV fo- photo of Foster. So she does say all those buzzwords, and all those parts of your skull are like very important aspects of facial reconstruction. So they got the buzzwords right. I'll give them that. But that is not how the process of facial reconstruction normally goes. It takes a little bit longer. There's a bit more time and attention put into it. First of all, facial reconstruction is normally used when other means of identification have completely failed. So in this episode, they already think they have an ID on the guy. They're still analyzing like the skeletal remains and the dental records and stuff like that. But they're just doing a facial reconstruction because it looks cool on TV, I guess. Uh, So normally that's treated as a last resort method of identification. It's not something that you would be focusing on right away when you're presented with human remains. Facial reconstruction requires a combination of both scientific methods and artistic skill. There are also different methods of facial reconstruction. Two-dimensional reconstruction, 3D manual reconstruction, and computerized 3D facial reconstruction. So 2D reconstruction is when an artist will work alongside a forensic anthropologist to draw what the facial features may look like based on skeletal remains. Then 3D manual reconstruction is kind of like a sculpture. Emily, do you remember our sculpture class? I do very well. I think we would rock the 3D manual reconstruction. I think we'd be very bad at it. We would solve (laughs) no crimes. Um, So that's when an artist will use clay wax or plastic directly on a replica of the skull they are trying to identify and the artist will use tissue depth markers of specified lengths to represent different soft tissue depths. And the markers are going to be inserted into small holes on the skull at very specific points of the face, and then the artist will basically sculpt the face around these points to see what the person may have looked like. Then there's the computerized 3D image, which I'm assuming is the the method that Angela uses on bones. Um, It's likely the fastest, the most efficient, and cost-effective, In this method, a computer system will analyze the skull and determine important skeletal details such as muscle attachment strength, position of the eye, and more. The computer method is good because it decreases subjectivity, so there's no, like, human error going on in that sense. And the computer can create more than just one image in a very short amount of time. But even though it takes a short amount of time, it's definitely still going to take longer than the 10 seconds it took Angela to do the facial reconstruction in Bones. So that's your little lesson on facial reconstruction for this episode. 
Now, because of TV shows like Bones, the general public is not always very aware of what a forensic anthropologist's job description actually is. Because even if you like, if you watch the show, you know it embellishes. It's Hollywood, right? But you don't know like the extent of how far off it actually is. So we talked about this a little bit already. But do you do you remember what we said a forensic anthropologist can do besides just solving crimes? Uh, you said they work in like mass graves or like with finding POWs, mm-hmm. like genocide. Yeah. What Emily said. Good point, Katrina. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, they can do a lot of things besides just helping on criminal investigations. And if they are helping on criminal investigations, they're not participating it, participating in the criminal investigation in the same way that you're going to see on the show. So let's talk about how the Dr. Brennan's job description on the show kind of blurs with the description of a detective. So as Brennan and the other forensic anthropologists are examining the body, they are constantly theorizing about how this person could have been murdered or tortured or taken captive, right? And I just wanted to give you some of the theories that they have about how this person ended up dead. So as they're analyzing Foster's skeletal remains, they realize that Foster has some cracked ribs which means his attacker must have performed CPR on him, obviously. But why would his attacker perform CPR on him and try to save his life if they're trying to kill him? And somebody on the team comes up with the great idea that they wanted Foster to stay alive so they could torture him. So the attacker would harm Foster to the point of near death, then perform CPR on him to revitalize him, then torture him again, over and over and over again. And as Professor Reedy mentioned when she was... um going over my notes she said is there no other way that a rib can crack besides cpr which was a great point but that's their theory on how he ended up dying and getting tortured there's also another instance on the show where one of the anthropologists says that a fracture in one of the bones looks weird that is the word they used weird and dr brennan agrees and she says that she's only seen fracturing that looks this weird since she spent time in iraq So they then come to the conclusion that Iraqi soldiers are obviously involved in the killing of this man. (laughs) Um, Lots of stretching going on here. There is. I hope they're all warmed up because that's a lot of stretching that they're doing. (laughs) So setting aside the fact that they're jumping through so many hoops to reach these conclusions, they shouldn't be theorizing about these kind of things in the first place because that's a detective's job. The forensic anthropologist in this situation is there to determine just a few key things. The age of the person, the sex, the ancestry, the stature, and identify any trauma or pathology that may be useful in identifying a cause of death. But usually, it's the medical examiner who determines cause of death, not the forensic anthropologist. So in Bones, their job is is not to determine who murdered Foster, the motives behind the killing, or speculate a torture involved. If there was any evidence of torture left on the body, obviously they would report that, but all the motive stuff is completely left to the detective. Forensic anthropologists are really not supposed to theorize about these things because they're scientists. They're supposed to focus only on the facts, not like the what ifs and how did this happen and when did this person get here. Their job is to remain as unbiased as possible and only state the facts. And it's actually best if they know as little about the case as possible to remain completely unbiased. And I was wondering, can you guys think of any situation that a forensic anthropologist might be in where if they knew a lot of information about the case, how that would affect the work that they're doing on the skeletal remains? 
I mean, if they, like, start to form, like, personal opinions about, like, maybe, like, theorizing about who this person was and, like, well, was this person a good person in my eyes? Like, maybe they're not going to do as good of work as they would if they didn't know. Yes. If it was, like, a highly publicized case, there would be a lot of facts or theories, I guess, on the news already mm-hmm. about where the person is and, like, if there was a missing person and why they went missing so i feel like they would be pretty biased already Mm -hmm. from what they've heard from the news or if the police told them anything Mm -hmm. about it exactly so yeah like the bias can really interfere with how they're doing their job and the determinations they make based on the statistics that they're gathering so in this episode of bones and just about every other episode brennan who is the forensic anthropologist assists booth the detective in interviewing suspects, looking for evidence, interrogations, and even every once in a while chasing after criminals and shooting them. In no world is this actually part of a forensic anthropologist's job description. Yes, a forensic anthropologist can aid a detective or agent in helping solve a murder, but they would do so in a way that is specific to their field, not by taking down a perpetrator with a gun. In fact, most anthropologists are not constantly at crime scenes. It's a small part of the job that Hollywood has taken and totally glamorized to a point where the profession on screen feels almost unrecognizable to the real one. As we mentioned before, a forensic anthropologist can study remains that have been impacted by like human rights violations, identifying POWs, and lots of other things that we've talked about already. So that's my analysis and recap for the first episode. Ready to move on to the most accurate episode of Bones, according to Forbes magazine. I am. I'm ready. Super ready. (laughs) So this episode is also season nine. It's season nine, episode eight. It's titled The Dude in the Dam. Quick summary. Students visit a creek to see a beaver dam. When they approach the dam, they find some decomposing remains in the dam. The body is covered in slugs and slug goo, and there's a trail of blood leading from the body to a maintenance shed. Brennan is called in to examine the body. Upon closer examination, they see that he is missing a front tooth. Brennan tells the other members of the forensics team to start cleaning the bones, despite the fact that their boss told them not to. One of the workers obeys Brennan's command, but becomes stuck to the body due to the slug glue. While attached to the body, he notices a paramortem fracture. The victim is then ID'd as Sean Nolan, a model who was supposed to be out of town for a shoot. He has a girlfriend, and Sean's girlfriend is interviewed. She comes off as cold and not very emotional, but she has a good alibi. Brennan and Booth check Sean's email and find lots of pictures of children on his computer, even though he doesn't have a child. But then they discover that Sean was a sperm donor for many children, and those images on the computer are like his offspring. And the fertilization clinic was selling his semen as genius samples because Sean went to Yale, which we find out later was a lie. Detectives and anthropologists conclude that Sean was trying to immortalize himself through sperm donation and they believe he would have become upset if someone tried to stop him from doing this. As the forensics team continues to examine the body, they find defense wounds and trauma from falling down the hill. The slugs attached to the body are also found to have testosterone inside of them, like a higher amount than they should, and they realize that this increases sperm production, so they believe that the HCG, or the testosterone, came from a street dealer. All of that aside, basically it wraps up in a way where one thing leads to another, and they eventually find out that the woman who runs the sperm bank was pregnant with Sean's child. 
When she told them this, he laughed at her and said he wanted no part of the child's life, and this made the sperm bank woman angry, so she killed him and dumped him in the dam. Cool? Even cool. more dramatic than the last one, and I, I didn't think that was possible. <laughs> it was a very dramatic one. It really was. So, in this episode, slugs play a big role in determining like um, who the person was and all that. So... It doesn't fully connect to forensic entomology, but I thought it was kind of a cool segue because they used animals in a way to help determine um, like some of the analysis they were doing on the skeletal remains. So I wanted to talk about forensic entomology. Do you guys know what forensic entomology is? I'm assuming bugs. Yes. Yep, bugs. How so with bugs, though? Like, what does that mean? Like, I know in our lab we did, like, a section on, like, flies and, like, fly growth. Mm -hmm. So maybe, like somewhere along the lines of that yeah yeah like how to figure out how long a body's been there based on the bug activity yeah exactly so bugs and larvae play a very central role in forensic entomology forensic entomology is the study of insects in the context of a criminal investigation a forensic entomologist will collect insects from a decomposing body and study them to help determine how long the person has been dead so exactly what you guys said. Okay, but how does a fly tell me how long a person has been dead for? Do you guys remember doing this lab? I know you mentioned it. Yeah, I remember doing, like, like life cycles mm -hmm. of the fly. Yeah. So buckle up, because we're about to go over the life cycles of a fly. Oh, no. It's going to be really fun, but bear with me. I'm going to talk a little bit more about forensic entomologists first. Um, so a forensic entomologist will raise insects in a controlled environment or lab setting and study the life cycle and growth patterns of a fly. The entomologist can then compare these life cycles and growth patterns with those of flies found on the body to help determine a time of death and also how long the body has been in a certain location. So essentially, however old the flies are is going to tell us how long that person has been deceased. After a person dies, flies will show up approximately within, within one hour of death. But this is always going to change depending on weather, temperature, species of fly, conditions, and context of the body. So there's a lot of variables going on, too. But one major, and one of the major variables of this is the environment and the temperature. That's really going to affect it because some insects can survive extremely high temperatures and some can, um, and some can survive extremely low temperatures. So insects will usually grow slower under colder conditions and faster in hotter conditions. So if a body is found outdoors, the temperature will greatly impact the growth rate of the insect. And also, do you guys remember, I think it was maybe this lab or the, decomp the decomp lab with um, the body farm. Do you remember learning about yes, that? Yes, I remember the pictures that were in yeah. the PowerPoint. They're like burned in my brain. It was, um, for anyone who doesn't know, a body farm is a place that forensic anthropologists will use to study like the rate of decomposition and how it affects the body and then also like I guess forensic entomology and probably other things too that I don't know about but they'll have bodies that were donated to science and they'll like bury them or like leave them out in certain ways to determine like if a body is shoved in a garbage can what does that decomposition look like compared to someone that was like dug underground so interesting stuff I find it interesting I think other people might find it gross and icky but all right so let's get into the life cycle of a fly so we can determine how that how we know when someone passed away so in a 70 in 70 degrees celsius weather oh my god not celsius 
In 70 degree Fahrenheit weather, the life cycle of a fly is as follows. First, you got the egg. Then you have three larval stages. First, you have the first instar, and that will happen after 23 hours of the egg being laid. And then the second instar phase is entered after 27 hours. And then the third instar phase is entered like 22 hours after that. Then it's going to enter the pupa phase 130 hours after that, and that's like baby fly. And then it becomes the adult fly 142 hours after that, and then it lays more eggs and it dies. So the most common insect found on a decomposing body is a black fly. And these flies survive and grow best in temperatures ranging from 55 degrees to 95 degrees. So as the fly grows, it will move through different stages of its life cycle. And since the life cycle spans over a very specific amount of time, depending on the temperature, the entomologist can then determine how long a person has been deceased based on the life cycle stage of the fly. So in order to advance to the next stage, the fly requires a certain amount of thermal energy, which is energy in the form of heat. And the longer an insect is feeding on and living on a body, it will receive more of that thermal energy. If you can determine the amount of thermal energy that a fly has received over a long period of time, you can determine how long the flies have been active on the body, which usually leads to determining the approximate time of death. And entomologists have a very specific calculation that they use to measure this. I'm not going to bore you with that information. All I know is that when I did the lab, I did a really bad job on it. <laughs> we did that in class, yeah? We, yeah, we did. We had that was hard. It. it was, yeah, I remember Emily and I doing it together. And, like, we were like, this is definitely not correct, but we didn't know how to do it right. So we, I, we left a note. We, did. we were like, this is wrong. I'm sorry. I'm so bad at math. I did not like I that know. one. I mean, you have a history major and two film majors, like, like math uh -uh. was never destined for us. <laughs> no, nope, absolutely not. Um, but it's okay. We tried our best. We tried our best, and I learned a lot in that class, and I loved that class, too. It was my favorite class, I think, one of my favorite classes mm -hmm. I've ever taken. I'm not just saying that because I know Professor Reedy is listening to us right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this whole process wasn't exactly in the Bones episode. They used slugs, which is completely different from, like, actual bugs. But I just thought it was cool to see how, like, in both those cases, like, you can use animals to help determine either time of death or something else about the skeletal remains. Because you wouldn't really think about that unless you were, I guess, in the field. I feel like I remember, because it's Hodgins is the bug guy yeah. on the show. He uses a blender a lot. Yeah, he, like, takes bugs and blends them up. I don't know what that is. Makes a bug smoothie. He does. And it's like, also, these chemical compounds mean this. A side note on that episode, he was, Hodgins, the bug guy, was growing, like, a fly in his <gasps> neck. Oh, my God. Yeah, I remember Which that. was weird. And he, like, gave birth to it. I didn't like that at all. Yeah, I didn't like that plot line. That wasn't a good introduction to the show. That's pretty scary. <laughs> I know. Also, another side note, throughout that episode... Brennan had written like a book and then she had like an author she was competing with and both the books were like fictional books about forensic anthropology and it was funny because in the show she was like her book is just inaccurate like it's irresponsible just like turns and winks at the camera yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right so one of the other main plot points of this episode is how the victim has a genetically linked trait he has a missing tooth and the tooth he's missing is his lateral maxillary incisor so if you look at your teeth, you have your two front teeth, right? And then you have the two to the side. The two to the side are your upper lateral maxillary incisors, and the ones on the bottom are, like, your lower ones, just so everybody knows. And he's missing it? He's missing it, and it's a genetic trait that he's missing it. Interesting. Yes. 
so that helps the team um, determine who like his offspring are because they have like the inherited trait. And then that also, of course, helps them determine the motive for killing. Um, so where do we begin on this one? Uh, just to recap really quickly, Booth was investigating more on the victim and he found pictures of a bunch of the little kids at the park. So he and Brennan go to the park to visit um, the kids and like the parents to interview the parents. And then they learn that those kids are all part of a play group that had the same sperm donor. Um, and then that helps Brennan <laughs> confirm that their victim must have been the sperm donor because one of the children at the park is also missing their maxillary incisor. How convenient. Right. I know, right? Wow. It's so, not because they're a kid and kids lose their teeth. I know. So first of all, when Brennan is looking at the kid and she's like, he's missing his incisor. She must have x-ray vision because the kid's mouth was closed the entire time. <laughs> so I don't know how she knew that. Second, even if Brennan got a good look at the kid and she knew that it was missing, sorry, it. <laughs> <laughs> she knew they were missing their lateral maxillary incisor. You wouldn't be sure that the child was missing the incisor until about nine years of age because dental development varies when you're so young, so you wouldn't be able to tell. So when you're missing your lateral, the way I understood it, when you're missing your lateral maxillary incisor, there's no, it's not like a gap like you would have if you had your tooth pulled out, it would just be gone like in the lineup of your teeth. So like mm. they would all be next to each other, but that one would be missing. So there's not like a big gap that makes it obvious, but it's like, like, like what do you, you know, <laughs> I, just, I can't <laughs> even. So isn't it also possible that the child's mother had like the congenitally missing incisor and that's why that they were missing the tooth you know what i mean i mean yes like that's possible very possible and then number four is brennan shouldn't have been out there with booth in the first place interviewing people for the case she should have been in the lab looking at the bones so just another reason like another like example of like she's like out there interviewing people like on the grind it's like no she shouldn't have been out there doing that so throughout this episode, there's also a lot of talk about defense wounds and how you can identify them and what they are. Do you guys remember what defense wounds are, how you can tell what they are? Yeah. Usually you can tell it's like scratches, things like that. Um, am, I, am I right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Emily, got anything? I mean, maybe if it's like if you're like holding your arms up mm -hmm. and there's like markings on the bones or something. Right. So a defense wound is basically a wound or injury that's been inflicted on a person as they're trying to protect themselves from an attacker. Defense wounds are brought up a lot in bones because they're usually examining the skeletal remains of people who have been killed, tortured, or involved in crime somehow. So do you know where the most common place is to find a defense wound? I'm going to guess the arms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, arms and hands. Yeah, exactly. It's the arms and hands. Um, and that's because you use your arms and hands to, like, defend yourself if someone's coming at you. So that's where you see a lot of them. So in this episode, the forensics team finds defense wounds on the forearms and hands. And that's a very common place for them because that's, like I said before, how you're blocking yourself. And defense wounds can be important during a death investigation because they tell us if the individual was a victim of assault in any way. In this episode, they can't determine what the weapon is that was used to inflict these wounds. They note that the wound tracks are irregular, and some of the wounds seem to have been inflicted by a sharp blade, while others were inflicted by a dull blade, which leads them to theorize, which they shouldn't have been doing, but it leads them to theorize that there were two attackers, and one had like a sharp knife and one had a duller knife. Also, they find that the wounds are like not like a common like knife blade that they've seen before. 
So they want to figure out what could have caused these wounds because they don't look like the normal assault weapon. Like a knife is usually what we see on the show or just in general. So two of the people on the forensics team use what I'm assuming is some kind of fake bone material and they take a bunch of like medieval weapons from the museum <laughs> they work in and they just start like hacking it. So I asked Professor Reedy about that because I was like, I don't know what's going on here. And she said that in the real world, they could use animal bones like pig bones and pigs are used a lot in forensic anthropology because a lot of their like anatomy is similar to human. So like for test subjects, they could use pig bones um, to try and figure out what kind of weapon it is. But she didn't know of any fake bone material. But she also said that they could use any surface really to mimic bone if they were just trying to see what like the mark looked like when it was left on a, a material. So they eventually come to the conclusion that the weapon was a three-bladed hoe. And since this hoe has three blades, bear with me, Katrina, <laughs> don't look at me like that. They, since the hoe has three blades, some were duller than others. So the angle at which the hoe hit the person affected which blade was creating the wounds, which is why it looks like some of them were sharp and some of them were dull. They then collect, connect a bunch of dots and they realize that a nearby gas station or convenience store also has a three-bladed hoe. And they decide that the murder must have been a murder of opportunity and not premeditated because the person was in the convenience store and they saw the hoe and they grabbed it and they attacked. It makes perfect sense. It me. does. So <laughs> if the person was a gardener. <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah. So, like, again, guys, like, why is this, like, come on, just name out the reasons why this is so incorrect. They're stretching. They're yeah. theorizing. Yes, it's weird. A lot it of is. lot of dots Be being yeah. connected mm -hmm. that are miles apart. Yes, exactly. So I don't know how they came to this conclusion, but it's something that they should not have been theorizing about in the first place, as we said before. So that's the that's the end of episode two. We got into our last episode. Are you ready for it? I am. Very so ready. this is our last episode. Our summary is a lot smaller because it's a much less complicated plot than the. F the fun sperm bank one. So this is actually the episode that we watched in our forensic anthropology class, which I didn't realize until we started watching it. So that was a little bit easier for me to do um, this episode, but I'll give everybody a quick summary. The plot was less complicated and focused less on the initial murder at the beginning of the episode and more on the careers and personal lives of the characters. So I have a shorter summary. So this is from IMDB. An archeologist is found murdered. His lab holds ancient remains of Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. The forensics team analyzes these Homo sapien and Neanderthal bones. That's really all you need to know for this episode, pretty much. So like I said before, we watched this one in class already, and apparently it was the least accurate episode of Bones ever, and you guys are about to find out why. So to start the investigation, the body is found wrapped in a cocoon made by some kind of worm. And the whole body is obscured by the cocoon. You can't even tell if the remains are human, honestly. So when Dr. Brennan rolls up to the scene, she looks at the cocoon and she says, well, obviously this is a human, and obviously it's a male, and obviously he's Caucasian. And she takes a knife and she just jabs it into the cocoon to get the body out of it. What's wrong here, guys? I mean, first she can't see what she's labeling mm -hmm. as, you know, a male Caucasian and also, she just shoved a knife yeah. right into the bones. Yeah. No preservation of the crime scene whatsoever. No, none at all. Also, like, if she, like, hit one of the bones while she was doing that with the knife, then it would look like... Right. And if I remember correctly, 
the bones were suspended in a tree? They were. So, like, they could have fallen? Yeah. And broken? Yeah, there were some missteps going on there. (laughs) It's okay. Everybody has bad days. (laughs) So, while they're investigating the murder of this man, the detectives search one of his storage facilities, and they find remains in there. Brennan is with the FBI team to investigate the storage facility for unknown reasons, and they can't tell if the remains are human or animal, which is funny because it's literally like a full skeleton, like, laid out. They're like, I wonder. So, anyway, Brennan has to determine if the remains are human or animal, so she picks up one of the bones, and she sticks it to her tongue, and it's it, like, sticks, and it stays there. And then Booth is like, what are you doing? Why are you licking bones? And she's like, well, human bones are more porous than animal bones, so when you lick them, they stick to your tongue. Have you guys heard of that before? I have, yes. Sure. Yeah, I feel like I, I don't know. I feel like I'd heard it, but like, I don't know, like a forensic mystery myth thing. So that is a myth that a human bone will stick to your tongue, but animal bones won't. So human bones are porous, so if you lick them, they do stick to your tongue. But animal bones are also porous, and could also stick to your tongue in that sense. However, you could use this licking method to determine the difference between bones and rocks because rocks are not porous in that way, so they wouldn't stick to your tongue. But like if you have a whole bone in front of you, you're not going to lick it to see if it's a rock. It's more like like little like fragments that you would find while digging or something like that. The real way to determine if a bone is animal or human is a lot more complicated than just licking them like we see on the show. The best way to ID human versus animal bones is going to be a lot of comparing and a lot of experience. Like, you need to be seasoned to be able to do that. So the remains end up going to the Jeffersonian, which is the museum that Brennan works at, and they quickly discover that the bones are thousands of years old and belong to an adult Neanderthal, an adult Homo sapien, and what they assume is a three-year-old Homo sapien. And they determine that these bones were thousands of years old just by looking at them. Now, while looking at human remains, you might be able to determine that they're very old, but you wouldn't be able to get an exact date without doing something like carbon dating them. So a very quick summary on carbon dating. Um, It's pretty, it seems complicated, at least to me. So carbon dating can get tricky and confusing, but basically when you die, your body stops taking in new carbon, but the carbon-14 in your body continues to decay while the carbon-12 in your body remains the same. Scientists would compare the ratio of the carbon-12 to the ratio of the carbon-14 to determine an age for the bones. So that's what you would actually have to do to determine that the bones are thousands of years old. So while examining these prehistoric bones, their forensic artist draws some pictures of what the remains might have looked like when they were alive based on measurements given to her by the forensic anthropologist. And when we were talking about facial reconstruction, that's actually pretty accurate of what they would do. I don't know about whole body, but for facial, at the very least, the forensic anthropologist would give measurements and then the artist would draw it. The forensic anthropologist looks at the drawings then, and they say that the toddler looks too stocky and short in the drawing to be a homo sapien as they previously thought. And then he jumps to the conclusion that the toddler was actually a product of interspecies breeding between the adult male Neanderthal and the adult female Homo sapien. And they were just a happy little family together. So when I watched this, I was like, would it even be possible? Like, did that even happen that a Neanderthal and Homo sapien could reproduce? And yes, it definitely was possible. And they did um, interbreed. But all, and actually all people with European ancestry possibly have up to 2.5 Neanderthal DNA. 
but it gets a little complicated and tricky and it's not so easy as like they met each other and they fell in love and they had a kid and they lived together so while it did happen we don't know how common it really was so they pretty quickly find that the bones of one of the adults has been shattered by a sharp object which leads them to believe that um, the person was murdered but there's really no way that you would be able to know the reason for the trauma just by looking at a few shattered bones but they come to that conclusion it turns into what they call like a a prehistoric murder investigation basically on the show and at the end of the episode they all come together and they act out it's like a little christmas pageant it's very nice the <laughs> neanderthal homo sapien family narrative goes as follows and how they all ended up basically they also found this family in like a grave like all laying together so this is the story of how they ended up in that position this is exactly from the episode i cut out a few parts for like time's sake and just to make it clear but this is basically this is what you get it was a warmish morning in the late fall in the foothills of the Caucasus Mountains. Spores and fungi tell us that it was a very warm autumn. Mom was grinding acorns into paste between rocks. The grinding rocks were a part of Sutton's find, as were some acorn husks. Now, there was a little girl, only three years old, who was sleeping under some skins here in the shelter, which is our cue for Dad to come in here for dinner. This is not a family like others. They were outcasts. The family lived apart because they were not accepted. Then an interloper homo sapien comes in and throws a spear at the Neanderthal dad. Mom, the homo sapien, then attacked the interloper with her grinding stone, fracturing his left humerus. He then retaliated by striking her in the face, and down Mom went with a broken jaw and very likely a crushed larynx. But her actions gave dad time to pick up his stone hatchet and strike the interloper. The interloper was killed instantly. The father bled out in less than three minutes. The mother's larynx was crushed and she suffocated to death. The little girl was three years old and all alone now. She was half homo sapien and half Neanderthal and no one wanted her. The lines of rest on the child's teeth indicate that she starved to death. They then go on to call this the world's first hate crime. <laughs> oh no. Which we can unpack that in a minute. But before he died, the dad crawled over to the mom, where they died together, and then the little girl's last action was to come over and lie with her parents, and then they show a lovely drawing of the family all cuddled up together, resting in peace. <laughs> I did, I watched this episode with you, mm -hmm. and one of my favorite parts was when Booth, knowing that they have all of these skeletal remains, <laughs> hears part of the story and goes, but the little girl was okay, right? It's like, well... No, like her bones are sitting on that table over there. She was not okay. That is a great part of it. They make him seem so dumb in that show sometimes for no reason. So while one member of the team delivers this story, the rest of the team, they acted out exactly as the murders happened, the order they happened, what like material was used to kill the person. Um, but examining skeletal remains would not give you all this insight into the death of the family. It wouldn't be detailed like that. It w that's just not realistic in any way, shape, or form. Also, the whole calling this the world's first hate crime is a lot to process. It's taking it very, very far. And um, yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know what else to say about that. That's probably like the biggest assumption ever. I know. Because there's just no records no. of any hate or the fact that they were outcasts. They just assumed that because mm -hmm. they were like interbred that i know <laughs> was it, a whole issue back then it's a lot to process you know what's funny too when you watch this show is like they 
whether it's something like this or they're like analyzing skeletal remains and they like figure out the cause of death or whatever they talk so fast and like confidently that you're like yeah yeah and then you're like wait a second it's <laughs> so convincing they, they are you know they're actors so there you go <laughs> um and again also just in general we see forensic anthropologists on the show trying to determine motive for the killings and examining the emotional side of death when their job is just to look at the facts and that happens a lot on bones it also happens a lot that the forensic artist will make like a digital recreation of the murder or the anthropologist will like act out the murder together as they're analyzing the bones and you're not supposed to do that <laughs> and that just also wouldn't happen in general i also just wanted to take a moment to talk about the drawing of the family this is our last talking point so it's my favorite one <laughs> I want to talk about the drawing of the family. So the drawing in the episode is lovely. The parents look like they're asleep. Their skin is all nice and smooth. Their bodies are preserved. And so is the daughter. They're all cuddled up together. It looks like they're sleeping. Let's assume for the time being that the story presented here was true. As the daughter starved to death, she used her last bit of strength to crawl next to her parents and lay next to them. On average, this is a bit morbid, but on average, it takes about 10 days for a person to starve to death. I'm assuming a child, it might be a little bit less because they're smaller, but let's just stick with the 10-day average for now. After 10 days, those parents would not be looking so pretty when she crawled over to lay next to them. Um, they would have been in a process of decomposition. So just a heads up to all our listeners, this next part might get a little graphic or upsetting. So if you're squeamish or don't like stuff um, describing like death or decomposition, I would skip ahead for a few minutes and then come back with us at the end of the episode or just go to our next episode. So, decomposition. What are the four stages of decomposition? Do you guys remember from class? I certainly do not. Katrina? Nope. Okay. I bet when I say them, you're going to be like, oh, okay. There's fresh, the fresh stage, bloat, decay, and dry. That's it. So let's start with stage one, fresh body. This is the time of death. The heart has just stopped. The skin gets tight and gray. The cells start to die, and the muscles relax, and the bladder and bowels empty. After this, your body will go into algor mortis, and that's when your body begins to cool down. So you know when you like see on TV shows and people are like, oh, like if somebody passes away on a show, they're like, oh, they're so cold? That's because your body temperature is dropping. Because your body's no longer creating warmth. And a forensic anthropologist can usually use this temperature drop to determine the time of death because the natural body temp is about 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit or 37 Celsius, and the body cools at a rate of 0.32 degrees Celsius per hour. After algor mortis comes liver mortis. This is the discoloration of the body after death due to the gravitational settling of the blood. So the reason that you lose color in your face after you pass away is because, you know, your heart is not pumping blood anymore. So the blood is now settling to whichever way gravity is taking it. So if you're laying on your back, the blood's all going to pool on your back. If you're like, if you somehow passed away in like an upright position, it's all going to pool to like the bottom of your feet. This process will begin 30 minutes to three hours after death. So the parents are cuddled up during this point in death. And after three hours, they would have had purple and waxy skin, pale white fingers, toes, blue hands and feet, and the eyes would sink into the skull. Next comes rigor mortis. So immediately after you die, your body goes limp. But after about 10 hours after death, the body will start to go stiff due to a buildup of lactic acid, which is, you know, um, when you get like sore muscles, that's the lactic acid buildup, and other chemicals in the muscles. It starts with the smaller muscles and it's going to move on to the other ones. So that is the fresh body stage. 
After that, you're going to enter the next stage of decomp, which is bloat. So bloat will occur about zero to 10 days after death. Depends on the environment, just like everything else with forensic anthropology. And this is when the body starts to appear swollen or bloated. During this stage, we see putrefaction, which is the bacterially induced destruction of soft tissue and gas formation. So at this point, the skin will begin slipping and marbling. There will be a greenish discoloration and insects are going to be really attracted to the odor of decomposition in this stage. Uh, you'll also see fluids start to seep out of the body. So there might be like a wet kind of like ring around it. And this is because all the pressure that's building up from the gases and bacteria is actively causing fluids to leak out of the body. And those fluids are the reason that the decay odor is really strong. And that's why all the flies are attracted to it at that time. Then you have active decay, which is stage three. This occurs 10 to 20 days after death. The body will then begin to collapse. So the body is bloated, then it collapses, leaving a flattened body, and a large volume of fluids will drain from the body. Even more insects will arrive because of the increase in body fluid, because that's like the smell that they're attracted to. And this is when you'll really start to see the flies like really covering the body. Like I feel like you might see that on TV sometimes, right? And then after that, you have dry decay, which is stage four. So that's about 20 to 365 days after death. And this is when the remaining flesh deteriorates and the body dries out. The body will continue to decay very slowly due to a lack of moisture, and the body will be reduced to mostly hair and bones. This is where you get skeletonization. The body can even start to mold like cheese, which I didn't know that. This is also when insects will start to leave the body because it's dry and there isn't much of an odor left or anything for them to feed on anymore. Of course, there are other aspects at play with decomposition, like the environment, weather, entomology, but those are the four basic stages. So I know that was a lot of information at once, and you guys haven't gone over that information in a long time. But based on that, what stage of decomposition would the parents be after 10 days, like they said in the show? Putrefication. So that's the... Is that the active stage? You're going with active? Yeah. What's yours, Emily? Um, I don't remember what you called the second stage, but the first to the second one. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you guys are kind of both correct because I was going to go with bloat at that time mm. because that says zero to 10 days after death, but also active decay, like Katrina said, is 10 to 20. So I guess it falls into that range. So the parents would be in the stage of bloat, which... I don't know. I remember we had to look at pictures of of that for the class, and it's not pretty no, it's <laughs> at not. all. It's very, the skin's, like, tight and swollen and purple, and there's, like, juices, like, seeping out of it. So that's what the daughter would have been crawling up next well, to. Well, see, if I was a forensic anthropologist mm -hmm. on bones, yeah, um, because the parents wouldn't be looking too hot, I would make the determination that the child was um, blind and also could not smell. <laughs> That does sound like a conclusion they would jump to on yes. the show. <laughs> I'm trying to think of, like, put myself in the mind of a three-year-old. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how, like, sensitive they are to smell and things, especially yeah. when they're mm -hmm. so scared and alone. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if it, like, just didn't bother them because they were starving and probably didn't have any idea what was yeah. going on. I feel like in a world where this happened, which it didn't, but like <laughs> I guess it wouldn't be totally unreasonable for a kid to do that if that's like the only like thing that they know. But like it definitely just wouldn't be looking as pretty as the way Angela drew it in the episode. Right. right. I also remember from the episode they like compared the drawing that Angela did and then with like how the bones were found. <laughs> <laughs> it just looked like 
somebody just took like a bag of bones and threw it into a hole. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so that those are the three episodes. Those are all my analyses of them. But before we wrapped up, I just wanted to ask you guys, what do you think are the pros and cons of a show like Bones being on TV, like for the world of anthropology and forensic anthropology? Well, I do think it attracts people to the field. And even though you're not learning like super accurate Mm -hmm. information about the field, like there is some stuff in there. And then to see, because like Brennan is the main character of the show, to see like um, like a woman in yeah. a place where like she's running the institute mm-hmm. and she's the smartest one is kind of cool. Yeah, I feel like you don't get that a lot. Yeah, for sure. Before, long before I was a history major, I applied to all my undergrad schools as a forensic science major. Oh, look at that! Um, specifically because of shows like that, which sounds pretty silly, but no. I mean it gets you interested. It gets young women and just anyone, I guess, into science and those sort of fields. Um, But also, like, we learned about, like, the CSI effect Mm -hmm. and how the inaccuracies, like, paint a much different picture in people's minds than the accurate one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it is unfortunate, but there are pros and cons. There was a while before college where I thought I was going to go into forensics Mm -hmm. because, like, I thought it was so interesting. Yeah. Um. I obviously since changed my mind. <laughs> I don't know how well I would do with um, the gore and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm happy to watch it on TV. It is. I find it really interesting. And this is not meant to bash Bones at all because that show is very entertaining and I have a great time watching it. But it is interesting to go to approach it with more of like a scientific lens and see what they're actually doing right and what they're doing wrong. And before we close off, I just wanted to know, since the Powered by Osteon's blog rated like how good the episodes were, like, just purely based on entertainment. I know I gave short summaries, but which ones did you guys find the most entertaining, the least accurate, and the most accurate? You know, I found the one that was labeled, like, um, like the best episode for mm-hmm. plot. I found that one the least fun to watch. Interesting. Which is backwards. It is. But it is true. Thoughts, Katrina? I think the sperm donor one sounds the most interesting plot-wise. And I guess also accuracy-wise, and then I'd probably rate. Um, no, that's it. That's just. Not <laughs> yeah. I like this. This sperm donor episode just sounds so dramatic and hilarious. That one was wild. Mm-hmm. I will say. I mean, like the story, like the Neanderthal story. Yeah, that was just like before you realize it's completely wrong. You're, you're like, like wow, oh, how so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I really was. I. They were all great episodes. I think the sperm donor one was just like what like every new twist every every Mm -hmm. minute so that might be my favorite but the neanderthal reenactment was great too so also in that episode they kept like the um people that weren't forensic anthropologists kept calling the neanderthals caveman and then the forensic anthropologist would be like don't say that which i thought was (laughs) it was very funny yeah that's it thanks for listening to this episode of anthrophiles i know it was long thanks for sticking with us if you did and we'll catch you next time for emily's episode Just a disclaimer so everyone knows there were a couple times throughout this episode where I misspoke. First, I want to start with when you are trying to figure out the sex of skeletal remains, uh, you're not determining the sex, you're estimating the sex because you'll never 100% know for sure the sex of the skeletal remains that you're analyzing. And also, we we use the term body farm 
uh, in this episode. Just want to make sure everybody knows that the term body farm is not as widely used nowadays, even though it might be a more popularized term for people who are not involved in forensic anthropology. The word was popularized by an author named Patricia Cornwell, um, but today we actually use the term forensic anthropology research facilities. It's a bit more respectful to the whole process that's going on there. For a full list of my sources, check the link tree in the Anthrophiles Instagram bio. I would like to thank Professor Reedy for going over my script and editing it and supporting this episode. And I'd also like to thank Professor Jamie Ullinger for doing the same. Music is Find Your Way, found by Emily from the YouTube Free Music Library. Cover art was made by Katrina using Canva. Also, special thanks to Rainette Shefu, our producer and editor, Jacqueline Callanan, and me, Katrina, for handling our social media, and David DeRoche and the QU Podcast Studio for producing this podcast and making it possible. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and find us on social media as The Anthrophiles on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us next time.